Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Recent weeks have seen an escalation of tensions in different corners of the former Soviet Union. Western media and officials have been hysterical about an impending Russian invasion of Ukraine as the Russians amass troops on the border, while a countrywide uprising in Kazakhstan quickly turned violent and was suppressed, with Russian troops stepping in as peacekeepers. All things having to do with Russia are seen in the West through a renewed Cold War prism, with caricature portrayals of Putin and simplistic motives ascribed to Russia as if it were a Hollywood supervillain. So what's really happening? Is it all right-wing color revolutions provoked by the West? Local anger manipulated by elites? Perhaps a bit of both. What are the local dynamics at play? Here to help us understand is Volodymyr Ashenko, a research associate at the Institute of East European Studies at Free University Berlin. So, Volodymyr, welcome. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, I should also mention, um, just so that people know who aren't familiar with your bio, your research in particular has focused on protests and social movements and revolutions, right and left politics, nationalism and civil society. And you're also an expert on the Soviet Union, especially contemporary Ukrainian politics and the Maidan uprising, which we're, we're going to talk about, and as well as the war that followed. Um, so I guess a good place to start in that um, in that case would be the most recent events in Ukraine. So why did this recent escalation take place? And specifically, what do you think provoked the Russians to send tens of thousands of soldiers to the border? And do you think there was a real threat of a new Russian invasion? Well, that's really uh, quite many questions. And uh, I, I, I wish uh, anyone would have a comprehensive answer about them because uh, they're more like, like competing theories uh, about what, what is happening. And the people who say uh, that it's basically some kind of like Russian imperialism uh, um, don't have an answer why it's happening right now, why it, uh, why it started in 2021 when Russia started uh, like massively uh, amassing troops at the Ukrainian border and uh, making very explicit um, ultimatums were demanding from NATO to revise uh, the expansion policies and so on and so forth. So if, if Russia is imperialistic, why it's happening now? And uh, again, if the other people say it's, that Russia have some security concerns, again, it's not really an answer why it's actually happening now, because discussion about uh, Ukrainian uh, Ukraine joining NATO, it's going on since uh, 2000s, and um, I think that part of the explanation, it definitely should be one of the critical parts for us to understand what's going on, it's, uh, uh, we need to recall that the first um, amassing of the troops in spring last year happened after United States elections. So Joe Biden is gone elected, and then something happens. Uh, and Russia starts to see things somewhat differently. And then we may discuss if it, they saw a threat from Biden or an opportunity that they could not use while Trump was a president. Because, for example, like Trump was like seemingly ready to discuss and to negotiate with Russia and saying that we need some pragmatic relations and, uh, and so on and so forth. But 
he couldn't do much of this of the things because he for, for his whole term was under suspicion that he's actually like a Kremlin agent or something right. like that. Yeah. And then Joe Biden comes, and so he maybe have some his hands untied, and maybe Kremlin may see him as more like uh, capable to do to change some things in in, in the international policies. But uh, I also think that the internal dynamics in Ukraine uh, probably is the least discussed, but maybe it's uh, part of the explanation of why it's happening, because uh, Ukrainian government, specifically Ukrainian President Zelensky, uh, saw, saw some opportunities or threats when Biden came to uh, took the office and uh what started in uh, in the beginning last year so a year ago was a, a kind of like escalation of repression in ukraine which is, has not been really seriously seriously discussed in the west of, like some information was published but there were no significant reaction to mm. Uh, for example, the, the, during the last year, the Ukrainian government uh, sanctioned, uh, basically blocked broadcasting of uh, most of the opposition TV stations in Ukraine. Uh, they sanctioned the leader of uh, a popular opposition party. And a year ago, uh, the, the party, the opposition platform for life, which like many regard as pro-Russian, but it's uh, much more complicated in Russian. Uh, that that party was uh, polling better than Zelensky's party. So mm-hmm. at the moment when this party got to the first position, they start sanctioning the TV stations, the one of their leaders, and uh, the ratings of the opposition party is going down. And uh, during the last year, Zelensky used the sanctions mechanism uh, very extensively, and many people are criticizing that it just completely doesn't have any legal basis. You cannot just use sanctions against Ukrainian citizens without court decision. You cannot just, by rule of decree, close the opposition media. Uh, the Western politicians didn't make significant... So basically, they didn't say uh, uh, anything about this, anything that would uh, have uh, any uh, reaction from Ukraine, a required reaction from Ukraine. Despite this was criticized by the human rights organization, by the United Nations, you can find uh, the criticism of of this uh, sanction in, in the human rights report of the United Nations. Despite this, this continues, and there is no significant criticism. And uh, like in Kremlin, that could be seen as uh, that some sort of lost control, and uh, mm-hmm. that Ukraine is starting to move uh, in some completely unpredictable and uh, adverse uh, direction. That uh, that Kremlin needs to do something with this. Yeah, and uh, this this is a this is a part of the story, uh, of course. Uh, but I I think that like just to to sum it up, this is certainly not only because of the international tensions and because of this uh, decades long uh, conflict about the. Uh, like the proper border of NATO mm-hmm. expansion, but it also has to do with the um, dynamics uh, in the United States and with within Ukraine. And also another thing that is also uh, should be probably much more discussed is the North Stream, North 
stream, the pipeline from Russia to Germany, that the United States start, attempted for years to stop and failed. And uh, in the final instance, uh, Biden uh, agreed that Germany has a right to finish uh, this pipeline. But still, that's, uh, that's been like very serious economic interests to stop yeah. this uh, gas pipeline. And it's it's not simply about some geopolitics. It's not simply about Russia threat, threatening Ukraine. Uh, it, it's also very heavy uh, interest of uh, the United States gas export to to Europe, and it's economic competition. And uh, there can be attempts to still stop this pipeline pipeline and. It's quite plausible that this escalation, which is going on, is also part part of this attempt. You, you you could remember that, for example, if you that in summer in Germany, the Green Party, which is the most pro-American party, uh, and uh, the polls showed that the Green Party was actually heading to win the elections. Mm-hmm. Um, but it changed quite quickly. But uh, uh, until the the last weeks uh, before the German elections, it was not actually clear uh, what would be the final uh, uh, constituency of the governing coalition. Mm-hmm. And now it seems that like the social democrats, uh, which are kind of like more pragmatic in relations to Russia than the Greens, uh, they would. Uh, have like a higher hand in in designing the international politics, but it was not that clear in in summer. And uh, and finally, for, yeah, it's if Russia is actually interested to sell the gas through this pipeline right now, and uh, this process of certification is still going on, and it might be. It can be uh, uncertified, uh, and, uh, so something can s- still happen at this moment. So it's it would be quite a weird time for them to start a massive invasion to Ukraine and uh, uh, jeopardize the, the like, very expensive project that they right. invested to. So um, basically, I think that uh, yeah, speaking about how serious it is, I think it is serious. But uh, I'm not sure that uh, massive invasion and occupation of Ukraine that has been seriously discussed and not, not simply discussed, it's, 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 it's really like looked like some kind of like a media campaign mm. in, in, in the media and the uh, um, uh, anonymous U.S. officials were like feeding the comment that Russia is preparing invasion, and um, <laughs> it's, it's a big question whether we should really, how much we should trust this. So, yeah, right. something, something is happening, but is it the most trustful narrative about what is right. what is happening? And um, after the Iraq war, we simply know that yeah, some people may may plan the lie and may use this lie to start the war that would have uh, disastrous consequences, not just for one country, but for the whole region, if not for the whole world. Yes. And 
Is it possible now? It is also possible, but of course it uh, would be speculative to say that uh, this is just some uh, uh, media campaign without any empirical basis on the ground or it's, uh, some, some, something opposite. I think there are too many factors and what we have to be uh, aware of is, uh, is not only the geopolitical conflict, whoever is actually the most aggressive part there from the perspectives of different people, but also the, the economic competition, also the electoral dynamics in the United States and the dynamics of Ukrainian political regime, which uh, kind of like crossed many lines of uh, uh, like some kind of liberal democracy like, like, uh, last year. And uh, there are many things that many people should be concerned about, but they are not concerned about because it's kind of some, somehow bad for Russia. And if it's bad for Russia, it's... Uh, and it's good for quite, America, right? Yeah, it's, that, that's the it's thought good process. For, it's good for Ukraine, it's good for America, it's good for Europe, but uh, yeah. it's not always this, uh, this, uh, as it this black and white. It's not always this black and white. No, that's a really, that's a really excellent breakdown of, of the reality behind the scenes. And I think, I mean, also the Russians themselves continue to say they have no plans to invade Ukraine. So really the only place that that accusation is coming from is like you said, anonymous American officials. And I'd like to go back and discuss Ukrainian history uh, a bit with you. But first I just wanted to very quickly address something that happened in the present recently. Um, and I know that you said to me, it's not your specific expertise, but you know, I've seen you kind of like making a few comments about this. So I just wanted to know if you could maybe give us some background on what provoked last week's seemingly short uprising in Kazakhstan. And I know that that is not a easy answer, um, but based on what you know from your vantage point, uh, what do you think provoked what happened last week? Yeah, it's a big question. It's uh, two recent events and I'm indeed, uh, I don't want to, be, to pretend that I'm like a deep expert on Kazakhstan. I've studied Ukraine extensively, and of course, I understand the Ukrainian-Russian relations. But Kazakhstan is, uh, in relation to Kazakhstan, I'm more like a distant observer. And, but I can compare the Kazakh events uh, with uh, other sure. revolutions that I uh, that I actually studied, and it looks like uh, the. The, the uprising had the social roots, uh, but uh, yeah, if you just say that this social explosion or there were some real social problems behind the people who started to protest, it usually doesn't explain much. And uh, finally, that was kind of like, uh, it was actually capitalist dynamics, uh, the market dynamics that the, they decided to raise the prices for gas that uh, the people used uh, uh, for running their uh, autos and uh, the price increased and the people were like, protesting against this. Uh, so like at the basis this, this was not the, like, some, somehow some, some crazy authoritarian decision of the government, this was market. Mm. Market behaved this way, and we, are, we we know that the prices for gas increased just uh, hugely. 
also partially because of the uh, North Stream 2 and attempts to either to stop it or to postpone it or whatever. But of course, the 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 the, the, the reality of uh, authoritarian regime where President Nazarbayev was ruling like since since Kazakhstan became an independent country and even after uh, his kind of resignation uh, two years ago, uh, he was still uh, an important person in the political regime and, and keeping informal power and, uh, and the power of his uh, family and relatives were also quite present. So these things, uh, at some point, uh, they, they usually lead to, to to a massive protest because this kind of political systems become unrepresentative of the of the population. And uh, but uh, the, the different question is why this uh, social pro protests and water strikes escalated so quickly into the very violent events that we could see from television and blogs and uh, that ended in, in, in shooting, in, in, in massive uh, so-called anti-terrorist operation, into inviting the uh, military of Russia, Belarus, uh, Armenia, Kyrgyzstan, of the CSTO organization. And uh, for this... Uh, it, it, it just doesn't happen like this. You have many people very aggrieved about social problems, and then uh, suddenly, just in like in the in the course of a couple of days, they turn into massive uh, violence, violence, uh, yeah, organized violence, violent, violent riots, yeah. riots uh, looting, and so on and so forth, and. Um, so at, at this moment, we have like, again, competing narratives about this. And um, one of them is like a typical liberal, the people against dictatorship, there were right. depression and the people were aggrieved. And so they started to uh, attack the local authorities, taking arms and so on. Another narrative is a, left, a leftist one, which uh, describes this as a worker surprising. And there are narratives that focus on the inter-elite struggle. It could it looks like that Tokayev, uh, the president of Kazakhstan, is now taking more power, and Nazarbayev may be uh, moved away. And perhaps uh, there are some negotiations behind the curtains uh, that uh, how to move away Nazarbayev or his relatives. Uh, that would not destabilize the whole political system in Kazakhstan again. Or maybe Tokayev is actually telling the truth when he says that it was like kind of a conspiracy within the security institutions and that there was some, some prepared coup d'etat against Tokayev that he prevented uh, it. And there are other narratives that focus on the international relations. One of them is, again, Russian imperialism. Another is that this is kind of like a color revolution, mm -hmm. some technology of Western imperialism. The problem is that um, uh, I think that neither of these narratives actually covers even even half of the events wow. that happened. And uh, the, prob the, the, the very striking difference from other 
revolutions and uprising in post-Soviet space that actually in other countries, the revolutions and uprising, they, 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 they did have some unifying symbols, quite abstract, quite vague, and that was a big problem for that. But yeah, we know that like in Ukraine, the people shouted, glory to Ukraine, glory to the heroes, and this became quite quickly the, the rallying um, uh, slogan for protesters at very different cities. And mm-hmm. the, 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 the people protesting in different regions, in different cities, they were kind of like recognizing each other with, with, with this, uh, with, with this uh, slogan. And in Belarus uh, in 2020, the people used white, red, white opposition flag that uh, has some nationalist roots, but for them it started to to mean some other different things. But the point is that the, the, all, all, all in every city they use this. But we do not see such things in, in Kazakhstan. Mm. Uh, we don't see the unifying symbols. We don't see uh, any coordinative structure uh, that would unify different groups, the workers, it like the liberal protesters, the, uh, the the opposition parties that many are actually in emigration, and the remains of the opposition civil society that was repressed by uh, Nazarbayev. That now may, may, many are strictly online, or the connection with those who actually were doing looting with the armed groups. And with, among the armed groups, there are also like a big diversity uh, so far as uh, uh, we can rely on, on the testimonies and analysis of the local observers. The, the, there are criminal groups, there are probably Islamist groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, what actually unites them? Do they have any, any, any goal in common? Any unifying symbol, any unifying claim, any unifying coordinating structure, any unifying leader. And so far, we, we, we do not see any uh, like this. Maybe I've missed something. I can admit that I'm a distant observer, and maybe the people in Kazakhstan, they, they could identify this. But from the like the, the multiple information articles, um, blogs uh, that I could process, I, I just do not see this. And w- what I see is like the dispersed, very diverse agents pursuing their own goals, exploiting their opportunities. The workers started the protest and then some looters or criminals or political radicals or probably some coup d'etat conspiracy Mm -hmm. exploited the social crisis and tried to do uh, their things. And Tokayev could also exploit the political crisis in order to remove Nazarbayev or to, to prevent a danger to himself. And Russia might exploit this crisis in Kazakhstan. And for example, just right before the uh, negotiations with the United States and NATO to show that they actually can take control of the neighboring country very quickly without any massive invasion that they introduced right now, just 2,500 um, uh, men mm-hmm. and uh, and so that's uh, that's uh, I, I would urge people not to go into very simple conclusions 
especially just reading about this country for a couple of days. Yeah, everyone becomes an expert. Everyone becomes an expert, right? To be careful about uh, taking sides and to understand that there are very diverse agents and some of them, like striking workers, they definitely should be supported. But I think those people who actually committed violence in, uh, in some of the cities should not be seen as kind of like an armed wings of a broader movement because it's a big question whether there is any unified movement at all. Right. Right. And that, that is what we saw, especially from the Western press, because like they they see everything in this region of the world as how does, like you mentioned, is it good for Russia or bad for Russia? And then they come up with a narrative based on that basic premise. And so with Kazakhstan, what we've read in the Western mainstream press, as you've seen, has been very much, like you said, this kind of liberal idealistic uprising, despite the fact that there was some crazy levels of violence. I think some police officers were beheaded, um, which, you know, isn't, and it was like really quickly that that happened, which suggests, like you mentioned, some criminal elements exploiting the situation. But I do appreciate that that breakdown. And just, I guess, to move it back to Ukraine, which is definitely in your wheelhouse, and speaking of uprisings, this is a good segue into the so-called Maidan Revolution, mm-hmm. which you've written about and studied extensively. And, um, you know, in the Western press, and the Western imagination, the Maidan Revolution, and I don't know if revolution is the right word to use here, maybe it is, they did succeed in overturning a government, but it's been turned into this really romantic mythology on one side, the Western side, which is, you know, something out of Victor Hugo's like Les Miserables, while others, of course, have portrayed it as an, an American conspiracy to back neo-Nazis, which is an entirely, um, which is entirely wrong. You know, I, of course, tend to agree more with the latter that there was, you know, an American element supporting the far right. And we can talk about that. But, you know, can you give us a bit of a more nuanced history of those events? You know, was it violent? Was it peaceful? Was it spontaneous? Was it a foreign conspiracy? Was it liberal left? Were there neo-Nazis? Were there maybe both? Um, what's, what's your view of the Maidan Revolution? Uh, the Euromaidan Revolution was actually the third revolution uh-huh. in Ukraine in the life of just one generation. And then there's uh, some, some, again, uh, liberal uh, kind of like mythology about passive post-Soviet people that do not defend their rights and uh, their civil society is weak, uh, which is actually... Uh, not really true, but uh, the civil society is narrow. But it, in Ukraine now, it can press on the government. But like in Ukraine, we actually had three revolutions in the life of one generation. The first Maidan was in 1990, the so-called revolution on granite. The students um, started it, but it turned into more massive movement for Ukraine's independence from the Soviet Union. And uh, then the government of the Soviet Ukraine, uh, after a couple of weeks of the hunger strikes at the central uh, square in Kiev, they started to negotiate and uh, they uh, accepted part of the demands. It was also partially kind of a successful revolution. Next year, Ukraine turned independent, uh, which like lately, um, quite many people started to regret, or at least they were not happy about the post-Soviet uh, disastrous economic uh, collapse. 
And in 2004, we had the second Maidan, uh, the Orange Revolution against the stolen elections uh, by Viktor Yanukovych. And uh, like the funny thing about that, that uh, Viktor Yanukovych was probably one of the very, very few people, if not the only one, who experienced two revolutions against himself. So he was deposed in 2004 for the first time, but just in a couple of years, the president of Ukraine who won in the Orange Revolution and in the elections uh, that year, uh, he had to invite Viktor Yanukovych as prime minister in Ukraine and according to the constitution, which was at, at that moment, the prime minister position in some uh, respects was even more important than the presidential position. And in just five years after the Orange Revolution, uh, Viktor Yanukovych became the president. Uh, so the Euromaidan revolution in 2014 was actually the third Maidan, the second against Yanukovych, second successful against Yanukovych, and the third in, in Ukrainian history. And the, the, the reason why we have so many and uh, Maidans and so, so, so accelerating, so the, the, the next upheaval happens quicker than the previous, it's because this Maidan revolution is actually deficient revolutions. They respond to the deep problems in uh, Ukrainian society, primarily to the deep crisis of political representation, where, the, according to some polls, uh, particularly by Gallup in 2019, uh, Ukraine had... Uh, the least trusted government in the world. Wow. Gallup made the news that just 9% of Ukrainians trusted their government. And the, the, the deep distrust to the government, deep distrust to the political institutions, to the, uh, to the politicians and to the politics in general. And Maidan, they offered kind of like uh, an authentic politics, a real politics where the people come together in the streets and uh, they produce some kind of like collective action, collective action experience that ends with three times attended at least superficially successfully. So they, they depose the government. But in the end, the Maidan only reproduces this crisis of political mm -hmm. representations in its very structure, in its very ideas, in the consequences. And it intensifies it it's even more. So after 2014 Maidan, we got, so it, it was against the oligarchic president, Viktor Yanukovych, who was accused in massive corruption, in just uh, obese, uh, luxurious consumption. And after Maidan, the next president of Ukraine is a billionaire oligarch Petropolis <laughs> Just in, just in few, just in few months. So that's that's uh, and th that's about deficiency. So the revolution is capable to 
to to overthrow the government, but just completely incapable to change the institutions, to mm-hmm. actually to to solve this crisis of political representation, and, and not 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 even speaking about the, the very deep deep problems of social inequality and poverty. So the people come to the streets to protest for Europe, and Europe is uh, perceived as uh, the um, land of welfare, where like Ukraine, if if Ukraine enters EU, it would be a richer country, and Ukrainians may live, if not like French or German, but at least like Poles, mm. like millions of Ukrainian labor migrants in Poland uh, right now. So the, the difference between the former socialist countries they increased widely. Yeah. Uh, but uh, as, as a result, uh, Maidan doesn't bring the, n- not even speaking about EU membership, but not uh, nothing of the social improvement of the people lives. But it 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 empowers the neoliberal civil society that that is capable to press on the government using their uh, connections to the United States, the European Union, the international institutions, IMF, and so on, uh, and to impose uh, harsh neoliberal reforms that make the, li- the lives mm. of Ukrainians even worse. And the same is about the nationalists. So if these neoliberal NGOs can rely on the power of uh, of the foreign states and dependency of the weakened Ukrainian states on these foreign powers, it's another paradox, the, the, the protest for kind of like Ukrainian sovereign decision to decide between Europe and Russia, as many perceived it as a kind of like civilizational choice, and we as Ukrainians, we decided for Europe, but now Russia is trying to pull us back to Russia. It, it, it leads to even more dependent state, even weaker state, the state that which uh, is under, which is more dependent on any foreign power since it became actually independent in 1991. Wow. And uh, and, and, and yes, and the, the nationalist story, the, the nationalists actually indeed are not very popular in mm. Ukraine. And that's uh, the argument that many of the people who try to deny the problem of Ukrainian far right and uh, growth of extreme right uh, groups, that they say, well, of course, look, they, 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 like, they get just a 2% of the elections. They're not popular. They would never come to power via elections. But they also forget that the, now the nationalists, they can rely on the power of force. They, they, they are armed. They are very mobilized. They're very organized. And they can push for their agenda, however unpopular it is. Mm. Uh, but the state needs to, uh, needs to respond to this. And it was actually... Precisely the, the power of this national civil society, which explicitly threatened the government, which is why uh, after Volodymyr Zelensky won the elections in 2019 and started to make some progress in implementing the Minsk peaceful accords, uh, and had like the, the huge support from the society, he was uh, at at the short moment, his support for, uh, and trust to Zelensky was over 70%. Wow. He was the, actually the most supported Ukrainian president in the, in the whole history of the state. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, he won against Poroshenko with 73% against 25. It was like, uh, in, in Ukraine, that, that was uh, unprecedented result. Uh, but uh, this popular president uh, was not able to proceed with uh, implementing the accords which Ukraine was actu has actually signed. Because uh, some nationalists, they... Uh, they, they, they try to occupy the green, the gray area uh, parts at Donbass and refusing to get back. Other nationalists were protesting in Kyiv, and despite those so-called anti-capitulation protests were not popular, just 26% supported them at the moment, and uh, over 40% were explicitly against those so-called anti-capitulation. Nevertheless, Zelensky stopped uh, implementing uh, the Minsk Accords, so-called Steinmeier formula, uh, the formula suggested by the German president, and which could uh, give at least some progress for peaceful solution of this conflict. Mm. You know, it's... Um it's also interesting, of course, because you kind of alluded to this, but then there's this other role um, of the Western-funded NGOs, the civil society groups in Maidan and elsewhere in the Soviet Union. Can you discuss that a bit, the sort of role of the Western-funded NGOs in civil society? Because it seems like, you know, they really were like the mo one of the most important elements in what happened in Ukraine. And how does that, you were talking earlier about this sort of like cycle of this like vicious circle where their dependence on the West ends up leading them to sort of have an ideology that's all about neoliberalism, which imposes even harsher measures on people, which leads to this cycle of like upheaval, of social upheaval over and over again without actually doing anything about it. But anyways, to go back to what I said, I mean, can you just talk or elaborate a bit on the role of Western-funded NGOs? Uh, that's, their role is, uh, is, is quite interesting. So if, uh, if you try to look at, my, for, at the Euromaidan revolution as the kind of like color revolution, this is uh, some technology of democracy promotion, uh, and, this, uh, and allegedly because the United States paid millions of money to, to these NGOs, Millions, maybe billions, mm. as Victoria Nuland said. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, uh, and on the other hand, their role in the actual event was not that big. Hmm. So the, these NGOs were not the mobilizing structures. They were not uh, mobilizing the people at the streets. According to like many stories of the people who came to Maidan, uh, like 70, 80% of them, they were not mobilized by any political party or organization. They were just uh, atomized individuals. They turned to there because they, uh, they felt it was necessary. They didn't, they were not brought there by any organizations. They were not uh, like uh, organized party members or organized civil society or anything like this. So Ukrainian civil society is actually, it, 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 it is, it is not weak in the sense that it actually is capable, especially after the European Revolution, to press on the government and to push even very unpopular policies uh, in, in the medical reform, for example. 
in other social spheres, uh, but at the same time, it's actually narrow. According to the, the stories, not more than uh, 20% report uh, membership in any organization at all. So uh, more than 80% of Ukrainians are not part of any organizations. And uh, on the one hand, it's actually bad because they could be like members of the trade unions or members mm -hmm. of the left-wing parties. Uh, but at the same time, it's, uh, <laughs> it's actually good because they are not members of these neoliberal NGOs. And um, so uh, their role uh, during Euromaidan was mainly like creating this image of uh, democratic, peaceful protest that uh, doesn't have any extreme elements, that doesn't have any radical nationalists starting the violence, and uh, that it's all for for everything good and... Uh, Democracy, yeah, freedom, yeah. And, whatever and, and, those words mean, yeah. Yeah, for, for dignity, freedom. And so so they were kind of like uh, publicity... Um, mm, PR. Yeah, but P P PR people for the West of this of this protest. And I think it was a major, major role. Not so much in actually mobilizing or like whitewashing or like brainwashing the people in Ukraine, but... Uh, uh, mobilizing this international support from the West. These are people who speak well, uh, quite good English. Many of them they studied in the Western universities. Mm. They uh, because of this um, uh, projects funded by Western foundations for for years. They have connections. Uh, they have uh, they, they've traveled a lot to the West. They can, they can speak to Western journalists, to Western officials. So these are the people who who are capable to speak the language that uh, Western public sphere and Western governments understand, and they are good in this role as uh, as PR for whatever is happening in Ukraine. And even if like the, the extreme right is starting quite quite serious violence, and even if uh, the results of Maidan are not as good as many people hoped. And actually, like if you look at the service now, uh, there, there, there are less people who support Maidan now than they supported during the revolution mm. in 2014. It's uh, below 40% would, would say that they would still support Euromaidan, and these 40% are calculated without Crimea annexed by yeah. Russia and without uh, parts of Donbass controlled by the separatists. So it's actually sm smaller Ukraine, more pro-Western Ukraine, which is now more disappointed with Maidan. This is actually but, really, this is actually, that's a really interesting point that I, I also wanted you to elaborate on, by the way. I'm sorry, you can finish the answer to this question, but I do want to go back to what you just said about the sort of erasing, erasure of the Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Um, but go ahead, but, continue. Uh, by, yeah. by, by, basically, the, the point is that uh, the, the picture that this NGOs project for the West is quite far from, from, from Ukrainian reality. Mm. These people are... Um, are not really popular. Their politicians are not popular. There were um, several attempts to, to create a liberal uh, party based on this uh, liberal civil society. And only, like, the last attempt is so-called Holos Party, which actually got to the, to the parliament uh, because they invited uh, Svetoslav Okarchuk, a very popular rock singer, as their 
uh, leader of the list because mm. people love Lovokarchuk. The five percent of 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 the voters voted for Holos, but at this moment this party has already split and in, in Syrian fighting and scores quite low at the, at the polls. So uh, they, they always needed some kind of like uh, external help to actually to get these people to power because otherwise they are not popular. They are not speaking to anything that like the ordinary Ukrainian needs. They propose like the new liberal reforms that ordinary people in the polls say that they, they just hate this. Uh, and and the, if you look at, this, at the studies of the political um, values of the civil society and compare them to the whole Ukrainian society, there are huge discrepancies. Mm. So the, the problem is that the, the, these people, uh, they project the image for the West of Ukraine that they actually do not represent. And the, the, how to uh, represent the other part, the majority of Ukraine, it's, it's a huge problem. It's, uh, uh, and that's actually to your question. That you yeah, it's, it's actually, it's so interesting the way you describe that because I think it applies to so many countries where there's this kind of like sort of liberal middle and upper middle class of people that work for Western funded NGOs. Um, this is a situation that exists in Lebanon as well, well where their job isn't necessarily that they're representatives of society or that they can mobilize society the way that you just explained, but it really is more providing the sort of publicity for the Western narrative to the West. So it's like the West is paying people to tell them what they want to hear about a country, which is kind of funny in a way. Um, but to that, to that, to, you know, to what, to what I um, had stopped you to talk about earlier is, and you've written about this and I think it's so important because I don't think anybody else uh, really touches on this issue is the fact that the point of view the opinion of millions of Russian-speaking Ukrainians is totally ignored, not just in Western media, but by polls. And this is on a number of issues, including on, you know, whether it's whether Ukraine should join NATO, mm. um, what kinds of policies people want. It's not just about whether they want to be a part of the Russian sphere or the Western sphere, but there's also a huge difference of opinion there. So can you explain to our listeners and viewers uh, the sort of point of view of these millions of Russian-speaking Ukrainians that's being ignored. Uh, first of all, it's 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 not primarily about language. So mm. the, there are um, quite nationalist Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and after Maidan, there is more of them. Um, it's more a political division. It's uh, less about ethnicity or language, and this should be uh, should be understood. This. This, uh, this is a different way to see what Ukraine is. It's a different version of Ukrainian national identity. You can be Ukrainian, speaking Ukrainian, and actually do not see Russia as some the ultimate enemy of Ukraine that for like forever. And you can be a Russian-speaking Ukrainian, but actually believe that your parents were crucified and Russia is our enemy. Like, in the centuries before and in the centuries after. Um, it's, it's about how you view Ukraine. Parts of Ukrainians uh, understand Ukraine as primarily something different from Russia. And Russia is 
the main other in this narrative. Other Ukrainians uh, actually do not see it like this. And many people would say that, uh, like Putin said, that Ukrainians and Russians are one people, and many Ukrainians are outraged with this. Other Ukrainians would actually say that uh, even if you are not one people, and of course it's always this uh, nationalist construction of the of the nation. You can say two people, you can say one people, and it's always for what for are you say, saying this? It would not be possible to identify um, like some some real objective criteria. Uh, but many, many Ukrainians actually, uh, more than half, according to a 2016 poll, would say that Ukrainians and Russians are actually brotherly people. They are different, but very close. So the idea of the like eternal war between the, between, between the brotherly people is somehow um, incompatible with the view of uh, how we how how we understand Ukraine at all, and uh, this uh, position in Ukraine is becoming less and less represented in in Ukrainian public sphere. Not speaking about the international public sphere, and there are many reasons why it's why it's happening. But one of them is that there's actually. Uh, um, quite specific repressions that uh, go against the opposition media that voice these uh, narratives and these positions. They are not necessarily pro-Russian, actually, but uh, they would say that Ukraine should not be a part of Russia, but it should not be should not attempt attempt to enter the EU, should not attempt to enter the NATO. It should be a neutral state. Mm. And is it is it a pro-Russian position? I mean, the, the real pro-Russian people are now in Crimea and in Donbass. This this is for me more like something closer to the center. And it was actually the, a centrist position before 2014. Because of the Euromaidan, it's now kind of like perceived as a, almost a treachery to say that you are against NATO. You do not think that Ukraine would become better if it would tried to enter EU, which it would probably never became a part of because EU doesn't want this very poor and very uh, troubled country in, in the first place. And mm-hmm. that's actually also about NATO. There is no, as far as I understand, there is no consensus to, to get Ukraine to NATO. And another irony is that there is no majority support for NATO in Ukraine too despite what the uh, Ukrainian government is trying to do. And uh, the problem is that this position for for neutrality, for a different vision of Ukrainian development, maybe it's something like, like a bridge between Europe and, and Russia, trying to be pragmatic in, with, with both sides and trying to trade with both sides and trying to be in, in good relations with, uh, with both the Eastern and Western uh, neighbors. Uh, it's... Uh, it's Coming pushed away from from Ukrainian public sphere, the, the political parties that are trying to voice this, they, they face uh, repression. The communist parties is, is simply basically uh, forced to suspend their activities. 
uh, as a part of the decommunization policies. Hmm. Uh, the opposition media that voiced this, they are sanctioned as allegedly uh, uh, fanning the Russian propaganda. However, they actually want, some of them are one of the most popular media in this country. So they represent uh, the voice and uh, beliefs of a very large part of Ukrainians, even if mm. not majority. But okay, is it twenty, thirty percent is some, some insignificant number. And, and now these people are uh, seeing that they uh, might not have the parties that they, they could vote for, or even if they would vote for these parties, they would never ever get the governing positions because it would be just perceived as like Russian coup d'etat. Yeah. They uh, now have problems to access the opposition media. Of course, this bans in, in the 21st century uh, sounds like sounds like, uh, uh, like a joke because you, you can use VPN, you can access uh, the banned uh, media, but for some people, especially for the older people, it's, mm. it's becoming a problem. Yeah. For more technical savvy younger people, it's it's just a joke. You you, <laughs> right. yeah, you, you, you switch on VPN, you access uh, everything that is banned, and it's but for the younger people, it's also like uh, 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 an irritation. What what what's actually going on? Why we are uh, bullied by these nationalists? Mm. Um, I mean, that's, that's another part of this reality, this uh, grassroots bullying by the very nationalist conscious uh, uh, guys. Some of them actually make their public careers on uh, uh, selecting some supermarket cashier lady that said something in Russian or said something politically inappropriate and starting some like nationwide internet Cancel culture, how it's wow. started to, uh, to, to be known in, in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and, wow. uh, and in, in, in the state, there's a people who actually said something sexist or racist, or at least it is applied. In Ukraine, it's just uh, the, the, they say the things that there is no consensus at all. Yeah. Not among the scholars who studied Ukraine, not, not among the Ukrainians themselves. What is the most correct thing? To, to, to say about the Ukrainian history, Ukrainian relations with Russia, uh, the nature of the Maidan and, and the war, and, and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, part of the quite large part of the Ukrainian society is starting to feel that they are not represented in in the politics, in the civil society of this country, and not speaking about the international sphere where, like, usually Western journalists have their set of uh, NGO, English-speaking uh, Ukrainian speakers who would say what the Western they journalists hear. want right. them to hear. Right. Right. Yeah, it's so interesting. It actually sounds like if your if your cycle that you mentioned earlier is correct, then that would lead to like another social upheaval at some point relatively soon, if that's how people are feeling once again, is the lack of representation. But I wanted to ask you, you know, have there been other Maidan events in the former Soviet Union? And do you see Belarus in this context? Like if if uh, so, you can use the word Maidan in very different meanings. Mm. In Ukraine, it's actually quite common to see other events through this Ukrainian perspective, and it's probably normal for every country that 
people try to uh, explain the things happening in other countries through the prism of their own history and politics. And so it would be quite normal to say something like Belarusian Maidan or actually giving a positive meaning. Mm. There is um, a negative use of this word pejorative by uh, by Russia where Maidans are, pers- uh, are described as, as, as a disaster, as uh, something that people should avoid because it leads to to worsening of the leaves and so on and so forth. If you, uh, I, I, I try to use it in more like social science way. I try to give a like, more specific definition to mm-hmm. Maidan revolutions. And in, in our work with uh, Russian sociologist Oleg Zhuravlyov, we try to actually to define Maidan as a deficient revolution. So a revolution, but it's deficient. And it is deficient because it has only very uh, vague claims only very loose mobilization structures, only very weak and usually distrusted political leadership. And because of this, it is so easy to hijack the revolution, to mm-hmm. exploit this revolutionary legitimacy for the purposes which has nothing to do with the goals why the people came to the streets. And in this uh, broad Understanding, of course, we can uh, speak about uh, um, my dance in other countries, and uh, from this perspective, it, I think it would be very productive to compare post-Soviet my dance with the Arab Spring revolutions. Uh, yeah. to, uh, recently, we had uh, uh, discussions in the media. What actually happened after ten years of the Arab revolutions, and only in Tunisia it, it looked like something like a democracy until the coup d'etat. Yeah. So, the, and there are works by the critical sociologists that actually said pretty much the same things about the Arab Spring and why it failed, or why it led to disasters in Libya and Syria, and why it led to very, very disappointing results in other countries. Mm-hmm. And there are Definitely common processes and uh, a, a lot of uh, that we should compare, analyze and learn from each other and to understand how it should to make our countries better and in a better way than and not, not to repeat the mistakes of the previous revolutions. Yeah, and that's, I mean, to, to speak to what you're saying, you know, there does seem to be this recent global trend of these sort of spontaneous leaderless uprisings lacking any sort of ideology or politics mm-hmm. kind of like incoherent and chaotic and and i've seen this in lebanon you know in 2019 in lebanon where i live um that was the case there where it was like the sort of spontaneous leaderless mm-hmm. no ideology just anger at like corrupt elites but and then it, that it makes it so easy to hijack, which it was hijacked. We saw the same thing in Iraq. I think something similar happened in Chile. I mean, not it's not like, you know, exactly the same, like everywhere. It's just some similar elements of that leaderless, spontaneous situation. You could even maybe say a little bit of this played out with the yellow vests in France could perhaps fall into this category. And I think as a result, you know, not in all of these cases, but these movements tend to fail, uh, But first, because they get manipulated. They get manipulated by better organized parties like the radical right or Islamists or Western-funded NGOs. But I guess the bigger question here is, why do you think we're seeing so many of these kinds of sort of spontaneous eruptions of social upheaval? 
if you if you if you look at this at in quite broad categories, uh, the crisis of political representation, or if you would say, like in, in the terms of critical left-wing theory, organic crisis, crisis of hegemony, it's happening not 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 only in the post-Soviet countries. It's 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 uh, it's a global process. The structures that connected society and politics and uh, uh, created a kind of like uh, a process of development of modernization when when the political leaders uh, they could actually claim that they represent not just simply their own interests or the interest of the ruling class but the broader interest of the society that was organized into massive uh, trade union organizations um, really massive parties with, with real membership, not, not simply something digital or some simply electoral machines, but the, the parties that were actually organizing the society, that that has uh, the, 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 that structure has gone. And we did not get anything to replace it, any any alternative structures, any new structures that would uh, translate the interest of the society at the political level. And that's why so many people are less and less trusting the politicians, Organize, uh, going for protests, voting for the populist parties, leftist or rightist, uh, join the revolutions. But the result is, 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 is basically the same. There is no institutional structure that would replace the old structures that have already died. Nothing new is replacing them. And th what we uh, encounter is that uh, these uh, populist mobilizations or revolutions that tend to reproduce the very problems that they uh, try to that uh, that motivate people to join them. In some cases, not only reproduce, they may even intensify, and that's why we we see this escalating revolutions in the post-Soviet space. So I think it's it's actually a global process, and it it speaks to the people in in, in many countries for different re reasons. The this crisis of political representation is probably the heaviest in the post-Soviet space, and it relates to the nature of the Soviet society that died and the nature of the post-Soviet elite, which emerged in a very rapid and very uh, uh, in, in a very rapid privatization of the state property without any legitimate criteria. So the people turned into, into millionaires and billionaires in, in the process of like a couple of years stealing the property that was created by this actually this uh, huge suffering of the Soviet uh, of the Soviet people during Stalinism and during the later years and uh, completely unjustly uh, distributed in the end and um, if you look at again at, at the stories uh, the, the uh, majority of people in, in post-Soviet, maybe even why the post-socialist country, they still do not see this uh, rapid privatization as legitimate. Uh, 
Yeah. So the, that ruling class that emerged in the in other countries for centuries, the, 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 all the princes turned turning into bourgeoisie later. In in in, this, in the post-Soviet societies, appeared in 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 the course of years, in the course of years, and without any legit, legit, legitimating structure, no religion, no ideology, no tradition, legitimated this uh, outrageous grabbing of the state property, and that's why it's quite obvious people are, do not trust these politicians, do not trust the ruling class, and. Probably in the post-Soviet space, it's a combination of various factors gives this uh, uh, um, kind of like more extreme forms. But looking at these extreme forms, these escalating revolutions, we can understand uh, something much more broad, uh, much relevant for the people in, in the Middle East, in Europe, in the United States. Yeah, it sounds to me like a crisis of capitalism. Um, at the end of the day that we see happening in so many different places on, on in varying degrees. And, you know, speaking to, I just have a couple more questions here. I know I've taken a lot of your time, but speaking to the issue, you know, coming back to Ukraine, I mean, we talked about the NGO element. You mentioned the nationalists um, and I, you know, that being like the biggest, the, the right wing, basically the far right. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the far right? You know, what we hear in, you really don't hear actually a lot about this in Western media or analysis. It's pretty whitewashed. But what is the actual role of the far right in Ukraine in the conflict? We know that, you know, at one point, at least American funding and armaments were going were getting into the hands of what could be considered neo-Nazis. How powerful are they actually? We also sometimes hear stories about uh, certain um political faction of people in Ukraine gaining power and whitewashing some of the past in terms of, you know, Nazis in Ukraine and trying mm -hmm. to like glorify them as, you know, good people rather than bad people. Um, so what can you tell us about their role in Ukraine today? Um, I think I actually the, the, uh, in contrast to 2014, the discussion about Ukrainian far right is now uh, a little bit better, and uh, there have been more critical stories about Ukrainian far right now, specifically about the Azov mm -hmm. movement, which is right. uh, uh, which is something probably that you wouldn't find in any other country in Europe. Uh, a combination of the armed regiment. Uh, a unit within the National Guard uh, structure. Uh, the political party closely connected to the regiment, the, the far-right party, National Corps, and also the paramilitary movement, uh, which has changed uh, its name. It was like the National Militia, now Centuria. Uh, and uh, like networks of... Uh, uh, supporters, also financial supporters, uh, the networks of uh, kind of like this civil society things, summer camps, training centers where these uh, guys can go and to have this push up or how to go <laughs> work out. And uh, we're, 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 they, they also try to create uh, the connections uh, with the international far right. And at certain moments, they were quite successful about this. And uh, last year, I decided the German major newspaper and published uh, an article uh, about the Brown International, 
uh, where Azov was one of the core organizations worldwide. So the connections with the extreme right in Europe are quite serious, although actually because of this uh, criticism in some of Western media, it's more difficult for them to do this. Mm. But uh, uh, to, 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 to say it um, more or less briefly, like in comparative perspective, Ukrainian far right at the extra parliamentary level at the streets, they're probably the strongest in Europe. Wow. It's, of course, it's a completely different story, the electoral success. Electorally, they're weak because mm. Ukrainian elections are decided by money and media. And money and media are concentrated in the hands of a few uh, so-called oligarchs. Mm-hmm. who uh, have uh, the resources to win these elections. If you look at the parties that win the elections, they are not actually, they are not extreme right, yes, but they are not liberal too, and they are not left too. They are more like patronal electoral machines uh, bringing to power the people connected to a specific patronal network. Right. And uh, the, the uh, one of one of the exceptions was actually Zelensky's party, Servant of the People, which was created from scratch uh, in 2019 and called after his TV show, Servant of the People. And uh, But very quickly, after they got the majority in the parliament, they were kind of like uh, divided or appropriated by various interests some of them closer to the neoliberal civil society, some of them closer to certain oligarchs. So this oligarchic system is is, is, is quite capable to um, appropriate the things that present themselves as a radical alternative to them. Yeah. And finally, Zelensky himself is trying, is, is looking like trying to create his own uh, paternal network, and uh, that's why this repression the, the last year, trying to repress so-called pro-Russian proposition, at the same time to uh, attack Poroshenko, which is leading pro-nationalist opposition. And uh, so uh, this uh, paternal uh, nature of Ukrainian political regime is the main reason why Ukrainian far-right are not electorally successful. I see. Uh, but it doesn't mean that they are weak. They are strong in other ways. And they are capable to push for the policies policies they need. And uh, there's been quite a uh, big set of nationalist uh, policies implemented since 2014. And many people tend to explain it, oh, it's just it's the war going, it's going on, so what would you expect? But these nationalist policies, they do not make Ukraine stronger. They do not help to win the war with Russia in any way. They don't, doesn't, do not make Ukrainian army stronger. They do not. The, the, the funny thing is that they, that they usually even create international conflicts just on the without any serious reason. So Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian government may say something in uh, glorifying for. For the nationalists who collaborated with the Nazis in, in in the Second World War, and this outrages Poland because those nationalists killed uh, 
dozens, thousands of Polish peasants. This outrages right. Israel because uh, they actually collaborated in the Holocaust. So Ukrainian nationalist policies, they do not make Ukraine stronger. They make it more kind of, they create more conflicts yeah. with, uh, with, with important neighbors. And Poland is very important, actually. And uh, within Ukrainian society itself, if if the country is becoming more divided because of these policies, so are you are you seriously thinking that it would make uh, it's easier to win the war with Russia? No, of course not. And the reason of, of this is, of course, that, that it's pushed from the national civil society that uh, has resources, and the far right part has primarily this enforcement violent resources that they can push forward and th- as, as i mentioned that was one of the reasons why why zelensky stopped implementing the minsk accords although he had huge support uh, in the so- certain moments uh, in 2019 and so uh, if if you would believe that this far-right movement is irrelevant is weak it's just completely untrue mm. And one of the like, biggest problems that Ukraine doesn't have uh, uh, the left parties at all, or mm-hmm. any, any any relevant uh, left movement. So in other countries where the, where, where the right-wing populists can gain large per- percentage of the elections, and the people are concerned, and and and, and then they compare, for example, the results of Le Pen in France and uh, Ukrainian far-right scoring like 2%, and they say, what are you talking about? Look, look at Le Pen, look, look at Trump, look at uh, Brexit, and so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, uh, they, uh, in, in these countries, there is also a powerful left Mm-hmm. Right, right. The right-wing populist parties are also left-wing populist parties. Are also left-wing movements that can defend the society against the far right. And yeah. in, in Ukraine, the far right is actually legitimated. It doesn't have any left-wing counterbalance, and at the same time, it's legitimated by these NGO PR managers. For, for Ukraine. That's, That's absolutely terrible. I, I think a good question to end on here, and uh, it's going to be a tough one, so you don't have to get too in detail, but I guess, is there a way to solve the crisis in Ukraine? Assuming that you could get rid of all the obstacles, like what is the path to a resolution to the to this crisis? That's, that's, that's a big question. And, uh, it's... Uh, the problem is that even uh, if you if you would kind of like say what 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 would be better for Ukrainians, mm-hmm. it doesn't actually mean that uh, it would be supported by Russia or by EU or by the United States. And now it's too much dependent on what these great powers are deciding between themselves and what uh, Ukraine needs. So mm-hmm. uh, I would say, like as a Ukrainian citizen, as, as a person who lived almost all my life in Ukraine, so that, that uh, Ukraine needs to be more pluralistic. It needs to, to accept uh, our own diversity. That there are different Ukrainians that have different political views, and uh, you should just simply stop to emulate that uh, those. Uh, 
19th century nation building projects, one nation, one language, one, one face, and so on and so forth. It just doesn't work in 21st century. It's probably as inappropriate as this great power talks about Ukraine. Yeah. You, 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 you just cannot do this, you know, I, because the, the, the people are already modernized. The people already see democracy in a different way. And the, the things that, uh, that the nationalist part of society is trying to build in Ukraine is not seen as anything... Um, anything good by another part of the society. Because mm -hmm. these nationalizing pro policies are not actually connected to the modernization, to the building of the modern political uh, institutions, to the improvement of the lives uh, of the population. So you get, on the one hand, escalating nationalism. On, on the other hand, you get uh, stagnating or even sometimes even worsening economic situation. And do you think that these uh, nationalist policies would be uh, supported, would be seen as legitimate, would be like taken by the hearts of by those Ukrainians that uh, that see Ukrainian national identity completely differently? Of course not. And uh, so until we accept our internal diversity, until we try to think how to build a kind of like synthetic um, nation, uh, trying to really be inclusive for different Ukrainian citizens with different views on what Ukraine is, uh, we would still be in, in, in this process of this in, internal crisis and uh, decided by the great powers that uh, neighbor us. Well, on that note, Volodymyr Ishenko, where can people follow your work? Oh, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and uh, I try to publish on different websites, Jacobin, I published on The Guardian, um, and also academically. So, just just Google me, <laughs> <laughs> and you're you have. I mean, I've been uh, in, I've been reading through your through your work, especially in Jacobin and the Guardian, and it's been really excellent. And you're, I think, one of the few voices who's speaking about this issue from really a Ukrainian perspective, um, which is always appreciated because often when it comes to these sorts of conflicts, we are always hearing from, you know, people sort of analyzing from the outside in. So I want to thank you so much for your time and for breaking all this down. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really exciting conversation.